0: New software abstractions always take advantage of the abstractions that have been built before. Software libraries allow us to import code that sits on the same host as a new program. Open source software lets us copy and paste existing code, or clone entire repositories. Cloud providers offer hosted tools and APIs that we can leverage to develop scalable, easy-to-use infrastructure. When existing pieces of software are built into new software, the existing software becomes a dependency. Managing those dependencies is an engineering problem. Maya Pitzerius is the founder of Deps.Cloud, a project with the goal of improving dependency changes across a company's ecosystem. In today's show, we talk about the modern dependency issues of a large company and her perspective on how to address them. Maya has developed the project in public on Find Collabs, and we also spent some time about building in the open. Maya Pitzerous, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Happy to be here. You are working on a project called Deps Cloud, and... The best place to begin this conversation is with dependency management. Describe the modern problems of dependency management.
1: Yeah, so I guess to start with, you wind up wanting to build a project. That project wants to use other people's source code or other people's code to be able to kind of build more on top of that. And so one way you can kind of go through the management of these dependencies is through using your kind of language native package manager. So with Rust, that'd be Cargo. With GoMod, that's Vigo. And with things like Node, that's the package JSON file.
0: And what are the problems in the way that people manage dependencies these days?
1: I guess one of the big problems is staying on top of latest versions, making sure you're addressing CVEs as they come through. And like, with larger and larger ecosystems, that becomes a bigger and bigger web, right? So if you look at you know, different companies out there, they might have a couple thousand repos that all depend on one kind of core library. And when a bug is in that core library, you need to be able to, one, propagate changes across your infrastructure quickly, but then, two, have confidence that you can actually mitigate changes in a reasonable amount of time.
0: And the... Left pad gate thing that happened a while ago. Have we fixed the software supply chain so that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore?
1: I don't think we've fixed it. I think a lot of people have. I guess their own internal solutions, whether it be caching or mirroring. Like at Indeed, we run through like a internal local proxy that keeps a copy of any artifact that we use. So if something like Left Pad happened where The module was removed from NPM, we're able to go in and still download the copy of the file from our internal registry. But I think tools are getting better about this. Like NPM actually even removed the ability to delete modules from their registry. They kind of add it as an extra, like you need to be sure that you're doing this component.
0: So we got NPM modules, we've got cloud tools, we've got GitHub repositories, we've got other package management systems. Where else are we getting these dependencies from? What are all the different flavors of dependencies that we're managing?
1: Right, so I guess like even just looking at it beyond the code level, right, you have some dependency on maybe some native system calls inside of your project, hopefully not too many, but there's, you know, you could probably go on and on about this. Service dependencies are another good one. So if you needed to communicate to remote services, making sure you're staying on top of that, you know, service library is kind of critical. I think like looking at things like Kubernetes is a good example where they are coming up with new versions pretty quickly. And the more code that you have lingering on older versions of the client API, the more likely you're going to lose support for a given resource at some time.
0: Are there any other problems with dependency management or reliance on other people's code that the Kubernetes ecosystem has made you aware of? No, not too many.
1: I guess like one big problem is trying to figure out the source of truth for things. So if you looked at, you know, the Lodash library or, or was it Lodash that happened? I don't remember now. The one that we were just talking about. Like oh, LeftPad? Yeah, LeftPad. So needing to be able to track, you know, who was actually producing this module at some given time that's even an interesting problem bolt db went under a similar migration where that's now owned by different top level organization but the bolt db project is currently like if you look at the bolt db like parent project like that's currently marked as deprecated and it's running currently under a fork under somebody else's ownership right so trying to identify like sources of truth when it comes to who actually owns this module and how do we get a new version published that's a pretty difficult problem in the space.
0: You work at Indeed, which is a large software company, and you also work on your own projects. Mm-hmm. How do the dependency problems of an individual's small project compare to those of a large software company? Yeah,
1: I think it probably depends on how your large software company runs right like if you look at google they run off of a mono repo every version of every library is fixed at any given point in time and so like they obviously have a certain set of dependency problems that you know don't necessarily exist in companies that don't have mono repos so at indeed we use a bunch of i guess smaller libraries but we try to follow some of the same principles so if you're working on a java project the version of Spring that you're using is probably the same version every other Java project that Indeed is using. And so we run into some similar challenges when we have to upgrade things like from Spring 3 to Spring 4. But on your smaller individual projects, you're probably not setting as tight controls around that. You're probably letting versions between different projects float a little bit more. I know that even with like my projects, like I'm not even trying to do something like that. I'm just every now and then when I touch the projects, I'll do a go get dash U right and just upgrade all my libraries but I'm in a more flexible space where doing that is less detrimental to the org
0: in a complex software architecture you develop a tool chain for managing your dependencies building those dependencies in the right order I saw this at Amazon I think we used Gradle to build the part of the company that I worked on And, you know, you you build Gradle and gets your things built in the correct order. What are the tools for handling dependency management, for allowing people to to manage their dependencies more effectively?
1: So I think with like Gradle, right, I think if you look at it from the perspective of, and and I haven't done Java in a while, so bear with me. Uh, Gradle, you can have like a parent project and then you can build kind of all the child projects within the same repo, right? But if you're talking about having tons and tons of repositories that each encapsulate their own object. And they may all be using Gradle. They may be using different different languages. But the build order isn't necessarily clear, right? Gradle can figure it out if it's all within the same project. But if you have to go transitively and kind of go from the root of a module down, so to speak. So if I said, you know, I needed to build every project that depended on Spring, there's no clear or concise way to say like, go across our ecosystem and tell me who depends on spring whether it's direct dependency or a transitive dependency so the direct dependency problem could be easy you just look for files like build.gradle that contain spring the word spring probably a pretty quick search across your ecosystem but if you don't have tight constraints around like requiring the import of every module that you use and therefore you can leverage transitive dependencies without explicitly declaring them, that kind of search becomes a lot more fuzzy. A good example is the Spring Starter projects from that ecosystem. So Spring Starters, you're intended to import a single Spring Starter module, but that single Spring Starter module depends on a series of other modules to be able to work. And so you might be able to use some of the common cloud modules, even though you don't explicitly declare that you have a dependency on it.
0: You work on Deps.cloud. What is Deps.cloud? So Deps.cloud is intended
1: to solve a lot of these problems in a very language agnostic way. It works by leveraging those well-known manifests files to build a m- knowledge graph that tells you how given modules relate to repositories that host them, as well as the different dependencies that they leverage. The nice thing about having in something like a knowledge graph is that you can actually invert a lot of those queries with pretty low cost. So being able to say, you know, that problem of who owns this module, that query can be done pretty cheaply. But then what's also nice is because it's a graph, you can use a lot of existing you know, semantics to manipulate and navigate that graph.
0: Tell me more about why you would want a knowledge graph for different... Package dependencies?
1: Yeah. So, one reason you would kind of segment it is you're not likely going to have like an NPM module depend on a, you know, Java project. So, having kind of smaller, distinct subgraphs makes it easier to query for the corresponding dependencies within that graph. It also avoids the problem of, you know, you might have a common net project for your Python libraries and you might have another common net project for your Java libraries. And you don't necessarily want those two to be conflated with one another. You want to be able to have them distinctly represented.
0: Mm-hmm. So if I have a project that has dependencies today and it wants to check the, what, the versions of those dependencies, I guess I'm trying to better understand the use case for when I would want to query the depths.cloud knowledge graph versus just looking at, you know, whatever the state of the art is for understanding dependencies today.
1: Yeah. So one reason would be that, again, a lot of these tools have been built to query up your dependency stack, right? So tell me what projects that I'm using, but don't necessarily answer the problem of who's using me. So from the, that query perspective, again, thinking back to the use case of I wanted to upgrade mm. Spring across our ecosystem, using something like Depths Cloud, you can actually get the full transitive dependency tree and actually see all the modules that inherit or import Spring at a given version.
0: Oh, I'm seeing it now. And this is coming out of our, or this is relating back to the conversation that you and I had a month or so ago about the monorepo. Basically, fewer people have monorepos than might be optimal. Right. And
1: your typical company case is probably not going to be leveraging a monorepo. They're going to be leveraging multiple smaller repos, at least from, I guess, the few places that I've gone and worked at. That tends to be more of the case. But I know companies like Google, Facebook, they've both been operating on a monorepo for a long period of time but then even kind of shifting that focus more towards open source, open source is not a monorepo, right? Open source projects tend to be individual. And so being able to solve a problem for open source is pretty valuable in my opinion. Something that I think a lot of people get stuck down that, you know, let's go the monorepo route when they kind of stop and turn your head back to the open source world and think, well, open source will never be a monorepo.
0: I don't know, maybe it would (laughs) never say never, right? That's a pretty amazing idea. So there's two... Emmett, let's put it on the blockchain. (laughs) There's two things here. So one would be the idea of I'm a large enterprise and I've got a bunch of different separate repos. And those repos, some of the dependencies that they consume are other internal systems and application imports. And if I'm like an infrastructure engineer at this company, and I change one of these internal application systems, if I want to make sure that all of the clients that are consuming that module or that application library update as well, I may want to go into each of their repos and make that update myself. Because right. that's one of the things that happens across a monorepo where if you update, for example, your protobuf spec or something and you want to make sure all of your consumers update their version to use your, your most up-to-date protobuf spec, you can literally go into their code and and update it for them. Exactly. But most companies have a bunch of disjoint repos mm-hmm. you don't know who is consuming your package right you do
1: to some extent but you can't necessarily make that guarantee
0: tell me more about that like if i work at a large company like indeed like the perfect company size example for this, although you don't have to say Indeed specifically. But you know how would you find all of the consumers of your client?
1: Right. So I think like NPM, when you have a internal NPM projects, sometimes they address this. But if you look at like open source NPM, npm.org or npmjs.org actually will tell you some of the consumers of your libraries. But the previous company that I had worked at last year, they had an internal repo that didn't Necessarily surface that information to us, right? And so, in order to figure out who is using that, we would have to use a source code search tool like OpenGrock or SourceGraph. Those two would be able to let you do search for things like who's using my SRE type library in package JSON. But, you know, it requires having those tools set up and easy to configure and easy to consume. But, like, when I was trying to do searches, I think even on Bitbucket. It was even hard to do, you know, full searches there. I just wound up cloning every repo because the company was small enough, and then just using something like the Silver Searcher on command line to search across it.
0: As Depths Cloud compare to one of these other source control search mechanisms like source graph?
1: Yeah. So source graph indexes all your code, right? They don't necessarily care about the little bits about, you know, what makes this a dependency or what makes this a, a module or a distinct node in your graph. They just index all source code. Whereas depths Cloud looks specifically at the actual package management files. So your package JSON, your build.gradle, et cetera. So we don't necessarily want to deal with like the problem of like, how do I index all code all the time, but rather like how can we help constrain our search space, right? So by knowing that these modules fall explicitly in this search path, we can then go and do finer grain searches of, well, these are the modules that we know we need to search.
0: So it can create like a more reliable tool for this specific use case? Specifically for finding
1: uses, right? Like if you were to try to think about Again, like number of repos being a couple, even a couple hundred, it's kind of exacerbated to think about in terms of, you know, show me every use case of the keyword spring, right? You're going to have some amount of, you know, false positives. We actually had a class or something like that, that had the keyword spring in it that had nothing to do with spring. So that was something that was an initial search that was done and and just kind of yielded an interesting result.
0: How big of a problem is this dependency management issue at a large company.
1: I think at a large company it's really, I don't know. I can't I can't say for sure because to me indeed still feels really small. But the severity I think falls more when you start talking about it from the perspective of like open source, right? When you start to think about like one, are the licenses that I'm using compatible with things or from the perspective of like, how do we figure out which open source project we need to give money to? because we use them across our entire ecosystem.
0: Hmm.
1: Like there's definitely some business aspects there where it's more valuable from a company's perspective. But from a development tool chain perspective, the automation that can be written off something like this is pretty powerful. Like what? So a good example was patching that library, right? Like you might be making a breaking change, and you want to make sure all of your consumers are getting that updated change. Well, You know, if it's 10 dependencies, that's not the end of the world. But if you're talking hundreds, if you're talking, you know, even honestly, something like 50 would be painful. Like you're going to want to put some amount of automated work around that of go clone this repo, create a branch, apply some patch to this repo, run tests. And if it compiles and tests pass, then cool, let's submit the branch for a quick code review. If it doesn't compile or if it doesn't run tests, then maybe you need to go in and be a little bit more diligent about the change that you're applying to that repo. But for things like that spring upgrade I had kind of referenced earlier, that was pretty easy to script. So yeah, like that's the kind of automation that I start to look at where, you know, you're able to be really proactive with consumers of your library in terms of like, I want to push out a change. Like, let me just get a good swath of the people that are using me.
0: Have you talked to other people who have this specific problem? I've
1: talked to a few. The thing that's really interesting is a lot of the people I talk to are actually working on like projects at Amazon, Google, Facebook. And so and so a lot of them are like, I don't know what problem you're talking about, right? Because Amazon has their own internal system that everything gets pulled from. And then Google has their monorepo and Facebook has their monorepo. But there's been like a lot of sentiment around like, yeah, when you actually do have a ton of little libraries where all of their versions differ. I even remember when I worked at IBM even getting some of the versions straightened out there was, you know, a little painful. But yeah, I don't know. I think the problem takes different shapes and forms depending on who you're looking at and it's hard to find like a common story amongst all of them. The big one I think that a lot of people tend to get behind is the proactiveness of of making changes, right? So, if you don't have to have a library that sits around with a deprecated method forever, right? And it's something that you can deprecate, publish one version, you know, go through and apply the patch across the company, and then know that from that version forward, you know, that method call is never going to happen again. You can easily remove that code from your code base. It will help clean up a lot of probably legacy methods that are sitting around.
0: Why did you start working on this?
1: For fun. So I started this project actually started at indeed with a previous implementation and it was originally scoped just for kind of some internal use cases mostly to help me with that spring upgrade but when I had to kind of initially prototype the idea I thought well let's go back in later and add in all the kind of flexible areas so it was really only targeted for java it built and maintained the entire graph in memory and ran one instance, right? So like it was really, really, really bare bones. When I had left Indeed last year and went to work at this other small startup, I found myself wanting that tool again. And in kind of previous conversations, we talked about open sourcing it. And so I started working on a new open sourced version, all written in TypeScript. I wound up running into some scaling issues with it and kind of took a step back and rewrote it in Go. And I still have one layer in TypeScript in there. But it's working much better than it, today than it was in that first open source rewrite. So yeah, I built it to like, then again get that same value that I got out of having the service at Indeed at my new company.
0: What's the state of the project today?
1: Uh, super alpha. It's been hard to get some time recently to sit down and work on it, but it's coming along. There's a public API you can go and hit just to play around with to get a few ideas the project follows an open core style model where kind of the the guts of the system is available in open source, can be run on either Kubernetes or on Docker, and it plugs into most ecosystems. So it supports not only GitHub, but also GitLab and Bitbucket.
0: You were generous enough to try out FindCollabs, the company I'm working on in the pretty early days. So you you uh-huh. posted depths cloud to Find Collabs and you did successfully find some collaborators, some contributors. So I'm I'm using this conversation as as a way to get I want your honest take on whether or not Find Collabs has been useful to you.
1: Yeah it definitely definitely has. I think one of the big things that I usually I don't want to say struggle with, but one, one of the things that's always hard to, to do, especially with a project, is figure out how to find other people that want to work on it with you. The other thing that's difficult, too, is when you work at a company, you can fall into the paradigm of like, I want to work on this thing in open source, but then next thing you know, like all of your contributors are coming from one place, right? So getting kind of a more diverse perspective on the project and on the problems that it can solve is definitely really valuable. Like, I didn't think about a potential solution space that this might address until probably more recently.
0: Are you talking about Depths Cloud or are you talking about find collabs?
1: Yeah, the Depths Cloud project, sorry. But yeah, again, like I said, I wanted more of a diverse opinion. And so I went to kind of look for places online to find additional collaborators. There was tons of ways to set up chat rooms for things, whether it be Gitter or Discord. But there wasn't like an easy, I guess, community to say like, I need help on this project Mm. and kind of here's some resource links go off and kind of get yourself familiar. And then like, let's talk about what you can work on.
0: Yeah. So is that what you think the, because right now we're basically in the process of refocusing the platform around open source. And by the time this airs, we'll have made that refocus because I think early on the catchphrase or the elevator pitch for, for fine collabs was, kind of for any project, and I think that was probably a little bit spreading it too thin, you know, and not not really, you know, because if you just focus on open source, this problem does seem to exist explicitly in open source. The idea of I've got an open source project and I'm looking for other people, that does seem to be an actual problem that needs to be solved.
1: Yeah, I think in the maker community, you see a lot where... You, people want to exchange goods and services in terms of like, I have a friend that's a leather worker, and he might exchange some leather work for some metal work from somebody else. Whereas I think open source has more of that digital community of like, I need somebody to help contribute to this electronic project that I'm working on. But yeah, in both cases, like I, I think in the case where, you know, I'm thinking about the maker's use case, seems a lot less dependent on the electronic forms of communication.
0: So we have this chat system, we have roles, we have tasks, we have GitHub integration. We're throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. Do you think it's too much? Should we be paring away some of this? What do you think is the stuff that's actually useful here?
1: Definitely the project links. That one, I think, has been one of the more useful features where I can kind of link out to any external content. A brief, I don't know. Maybe a way to give a quick description would be nice. That's probably the biggest thing I use. I do use the tasks feature quite a bit. They tend to monitor or mimic or, or match tasks that I have in the actual like, Depths Cloud project on GitHub. But I definitely have a few more in there Like right now if you go and look. I haven't tried video chat, and I do use the chat heavily.
0: Yeah. I've noticed this like a number of times. So people do drop in and then they start working on the project. Have you gotten, I mean, have you gotten significant commitment to your projects, like actual code committed? I have gotten a fair
1: amount of people to write some code. Yes. I've had a few people that have kind of not fallen off the project, but they've gone to work on something else or their time has kind of gotten demanded from like another project somewhere that they were working on. And so they've had to like step away from the project, but I have gotten some stuff done. Like a easy thing for people to do is go in and add a parser for their language, right? So right now I don't have Python support. And one of my friends was literally looking at it and saying, your lack of Python support disappoints me. So they (laughs) are going to contribute the parser for that. But yeah, the use, I guess, of like contributing doesn't seem to be that that big of a problem for some of the bigger tasks, obviously, there's going to be a big knowledge gap there. And that's where like having somebody that's been on the project a little bit longer would be really nice,
0: right. So the people who have come in and they've picked up tasks, they've written the task. Is this the actual code that's useful to you, or does the code end up being like not good enough?
1: Oh, it's usually good enough. Like we had, like somebody, like I said, somebody went through and added a few parsers, Hmm. they were looking at extending some of the indexer code, the parsers, like I said, are pretty low hanging. So those are the things that people tend to contribute a little bit more to. But yeah, I found that like most of the time, the reviews come through pretty cleanly. And, you know, like I said, very alpha stage. So I think a lot of this is not only just surfacing information to people that we think might be useful, but also trying to figure out what information is going to be the most valuable to show. Like I am not a UX designer by any means, but like right now I'm finding myself doing a lot of UX design and development. And so I've been trying to find somebody else to pick up more of that, to give the site a little bit more of a professional look and feel, but then to also set a like scheme in place so that way we can kind of have a good design guide to work off of for future
0: UIs. Do you have much of a background working on open source?
1: Uh, I don't know what much of a background really looks like. I've been, I guess, writing code for open source projects for probably about five years, not really heavily in the first couple of them. I found myself maintaining a lot of our Open source repos and Indeed, and then kind of just maintaining a few of my own. Nothing like ever big kind of took off, so my contributions have been pretty sparse here and there, but definitely have been working on it pretty heavily for at least the last year and a half, two years.
0: What kind of stuff does Indeed open source? What kind of stuff were you working on? Oh, God. We have an A B
1: testing framework called Proctor that's available. I haven't checked in on the status of that recently. We have an analytics platform called Imhotep that is used pretty heavily internally. It effectively gives you a way to quickly put together data sets and do queries across a whole bunch of different keys, fields, values. We use it for most of our metric tracking internally. We have like a second iteration that at least a second iteration on the front end, not necessarily on the back end. That kind of gives us a little bit more of a dynamic ability to query for data. We have our, I guess, like record log and MPH table libraries available as well. So these are like on disk file formats that were written to help solve some of our scalability issues early on in Indeed. So like our docs system that manages all the job descriptions, that's currently hosted out of a record log. And that kind of record log code base is open sourced.
0: What do you think about corporate open source these days? Are there any gaps in how large companies manage their open source projects or ways they could manage them better? That's a good question.
1: I think... One thing that I've started to see, and you see this more with the presence of the CNCF and other similar foundations where projects are being moved into, like, kind of these, they're not hosted out of the company's group, right? Like, they're moved to almost neutral sites. So, Flux is a good example. The Weaveworks Flux project recently moved to Flux CD Flux. And that was because, as a part of the adoption into the CNCF, It needed to be moved into this kind of like DMZ, this like neutral zone, so to speak. The thing I wish would happen is if we would have more communication around like who is using this project, right? Like being able to tell such and such companies are at least trying it or using it could be valuable because it can help, you know, indicate what the maturity level of a given project is. And that, I think, is something that's just a generally interesting problem is figuring out what maturity of a project
0: looks like. Since you brought up the Kubernetes ecosystem, to what extent are you using Kubernetes at Indeed? Or can you talk about that? Like, what's been your experience using Kubernetes within a large company?
1: So I can talk about it a little bit. We've been, I guess, undergoing some kind of migration. My team is actually what we call the platform for a unified runtime environment team. It's less of a team, more of an initiative. The idea is that, you know, after this work is kind of done, the team should be able to dissolve. We'll see what ends up happening with that later on. But we're focusing on kind of delivering a vanilla Kubernetes experience. So we have, I would say, two distinct efforts at this point. There is a single transitional effort that's working on getting us from A to B for the time being and then we have kind of the longer pull which is my effort where we're going through and actually trying to think about you know what is the way that we want this to be done how can we do this from more of the out-of-box style solutions so we're building clusters that look very similar to things like AKS, EKS, and GKE so the the different cloud providers Kubernetes integration and so we're we were just delivering we actually got a few clusters out this week, which should give us a pretty, I guess, good position for now, but it's effectively just a vanilla Kubernetes cluster out of box. The thing that i found in terms of like relating it to what our previous solution looked like, the ease of use is just so much better when it comes to things that don't look like your typical Indeed project. So we had a pretty well-built runtime that really required the look and feel of an Indeed project And so one of our teams went and ran Apache Flink inside of this ecosystem, but they had to put a lot of things around it to be able to get it to deploy to our runtime. And we were able to do something similar in our ecosystem with like a fraction of the time because we didn't have to write processes to make Apache Flink look like Indeed. We were able to just run the same type of process in in a Kubernetes cluster, kind of the vanilla way.
0: Why did you build your own kubernetes deployment system why not use like gke or eks itself
1: it's a good question at the time when we did the evaluation aws was something like a couple versions behind so they were on like 112 i think when we did that initial eval and we were looking to use kind of more of the closer to head closer to trunk so to speak like even today we actually just went through an upgrade off of i think it was like 114 was what we were on Think we're on 115 now, because there was a few features that we were looking to get out of it. And so being able to upgrade on a more regular cadence was a pretty big value to us. The other thing that was a little bit of a, I guess, motivator was that we not only use cloud environments, but we have managed data centers as well. And so we didn't want the Kubernetes clusters of managed data centers to really look all that differently or be managed all that differently when compared to something like Amazon's services or google services right like we wanted a very similar workflow of okay you followed the same type of pattern but here's this different configuration the other thing that i found out a little bit i guess more recently that would have been a big hindrance is that not every cloud provider allows you to configure your authorization service so digital Ocean is a good example where DigitalOcean, as great of a one-click service as it is it doesn't let you configure the authorization integration. And so using like OIDC to be able to let your company use kubectl on command line, that workflow wasn't really possible. And we were trying to get to a point where we can give developers more, kind of more direct access without hiding it behind a lot of additional tooling.
0: Interesting. So I guess for the same reason you wouldn't want to use OpenShift, for example, just because it would give you some kind of extraneous tooling between you and the Kubernetes cluster.
1: A little bit. I think OpenShift is closer to a vanilla Kubernetes cluster than some of the other cloud services. But yeah, like we wanted to give as close to the feel as possible. Like the idea was, you know, working or interacting with your cluster's internalization would be really any different than how you would do it externally, right? Like if we can preserve a developer's workflow in and out of the company, that's a pretty big one in my mind.
0: Did you look at Knative? Uh,
1: the serverless stuff, right?
0: Well, I think that <laughs> sure, that word right. that word like has almost been it's almost, been, uh, it's almost <laughs> been polluted, <laughs> I think, at this point. I don't think so it's, it's a good word anymore. Serverless. I think people I think people say serverless and now people think cold start, they think latency.
1: Yeah. So, I guess my background with it is that the last company I was at was doing a lot of stuff with AWS Lambda. And I always heard it in the context of almost serverless-like replacement. We have looked into it a bit. There's not too many use cases right now that are like too high demanding, but we've kind of gone through and like put almost like a dog ear in it for later. We have some notes on some workflows that might be able to be ported in. We are trying out Apache Airflow because that's one thing that we found pretty common with some of the index builder tasks that kind of back our Emotep data analytics platform where we have kind of indexes that depend on other indexes. And so we're leveraging, I know that we're trying to leverage Apache Airflow for that, but that has some, I think that's
0: coming along. The reason I asked about Knative is not so we could just have a fashionable mention of, of Knative, but just because I figure this problem of I'm a large enterprise, I've got my own data centers and I want a platform and Kubernetes is too low level to be that platform. And so I'm going to build a custom platform on top of that. I feel like that will be solved at some point. Am I mistaken? Like
1: is... isn't that Kubernetes big selling point as it's the platform for building
0: platforms. I guess that's true. I guess that's true, but isn't it the platform right. for somebody else to build the platform for you to install at the <laughs> job search company? <laughs> I don't know. I would look at something
1: like Knative as a platform that facilitates product development, right? In the same way that I think things like Kafka streaming are very much becoming more and more tools to facilitate some use case, whether it be BI or analytics. The, I don't know, meta platform of building a platform is interesting in my mind. In my mind, we're just building an environment. But, you know, we have teams that are working on Some interesting projects that, you know, we look at as a internal platform kind of solution, whether it be messaging, whether it be, you know, email or notification, like, I think we even have like a front end core platform type team now that helps with a lot of our front end development across organization way.
0: Sorry to deviate uh, you know, to your pure platform management expertise, but I'm kind of <laughs> interested in this. And, you know, if again, if this goes too deep into work stuff and you know, don't have to, but do you feel like it's been a significant improvement going from whatever your deployment medium was beforehand to Kubernetes? Do you feel like in Kubernetes has been a significant improvement or do you just feel like you're, you're just kind of doing whatever is kind of in fashion in the Kubernetes sense?
1: I think there's actually some like significant issues that Kubernetes is solving for us. One idea that I kind of threw out as like almost like a straw man solution or something is this idea of like having an operator that knows how to deal with Indeed type processes to some extent, right? And so that very much speaks to that custom resource definition. And even though it would just effectively be a deployment under the hood, you'd have a co-process that could act as like an Indeed like SRE to some extent. And that's kind of like the whole intent behind the operator pattern is actually being able to, you know, automate some levels of workloads, whether in, you know, MySQL, that be adding additional shards or in something like Mongo, being able to add an additional replica set. Sounds like that that's kind of the way that that solution is going. And and I think that there's definitely some use cases for things like that.
0: That's cool. Because then it's like, maybe it's an incremental improvement on deploying your basic infrastructure today. But tomorrow, it gives you an extra SRE.
1: Right. And that's like definitely the longer term idea that we've at least tossed around. Like, I don't know where that really stands. But getting into the, the, the workflows of our SREs is definitely one of the thoughts that came to mind of like, what things can we help take off their plate?
0: How programmable are those runbooks of the SREs? Because I've heard some doubters of the operator pattern in my various conversations.
1: I think it depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. But there's some of them where a good example is there's a few libraries out there that don't automatically reload certs. So if you had like a health check that could trip on something like, hey, my cert's about to expire, you could just gracefully restart the process, like using an operator instead of like letting Kubernetes get to the point of, well, you're no longer healthy, I'm going to kill your pod and you'll be down an instance for a period of time. But I think, again, like some of this might be, I guess, idealistic at this time, but there's other parts of it where it seems like it's a good pattern to abide to. I also think that operators are rather interesting in that I found probably about, I don't know, three or four different ways you can write them. And so I kind of wonder like what the intended model of management is. For example, if you think about a single namespace being you know the acclimation of my projects right so in the depths cloud use case it's running a mysql it's got the tracker service it's got the api gateway that's translating http requests into grpc requests and then it's got you know the various secrets and config underneath the hood like i might have some use cases under there or i'm using an i guess an operator to manage that mysql instance right and Am I now supposed to have a separate operator for the next MySQL database I stand up? Or is it supposed to be a single operator that then manages two within the namespace? So there's kind of this cardinality problem of figuring out, like, how many instances is it optimal for a single operator to manage? And maybe that answer is just one, right? Like, you expect a single operator to manage one instance of a project.
0: Any... Perspective on how I should modulate my hype around service mesh. (laughs)
1: I don't know. One thing that makes me more excited about service mesh is I kind of had the pleasure of attending gRPC Conf back in March. And Anna Berenger, I believe, was the keynote speaker for that. And she talked about how Google considers a service mesh. And in their use case, they don't just only include the use case of I go application to proxy to proxy to application, right? They actually include use cases where you either have one proxy in the middle, or maybe no proxies in the middle, where your applications actually act as part of the data plane. And this is kind of critical for your systems that really require low latency calls, you might sacrifice some features like having the built in Circuit breaking support or the rate limiting capabilities, but you get the added benefit of having low latency calls driven by the actual control plane that manages all of your other calls. You can kind of see what I'm talking about if you look at things like the gRPC source code, where they've actually added direct integrations with XDS, so the Envoy control plane spec.
0: Speaking of Google infrastructure, any perspective on what other tools we need to get to more widespread monoliths, or do we want more mind widespread
1: monoliths I want to say no, but at the same time, I kind of wish that I sat back on some of my projects and started more with the monolith. I don't know I guess the first rewrite for Depstock Cloud was actually written as a monorepo monolith type solution. I think with monoliths you inherently bring along a, either a monorepo for managing that monolith or you bring in a lot of transitive dependencies.
0: I'm sorry. I meant to say monorepo. And I said oh, monorepo. Mono <laughs> but I can kind of confuse these things. I conflate these things sometimes.
1: I don't know. I think like, yeah, one thing that would be, I forget which tech talk I had watched, but Google at one point did a great talk on their monorepo. And they also talked a little bit not much about some of the tooling that was aside from it right so if you look at things like the source graph project or open at some point they hit a scaling limit for a single repository right and so they, they talk about this as a problem that they faced with the google source where when they went into a mono repo many of the tool integrations that they had, like much of that tooling just kind of stops working because it doesn't think you'll ever get that big and so you know, being able to sit down and like solve some of those in more of an open capacity, like being able to get source graph to be able to scale to support a monorepo would be at least of that capacity would be great, right? I know that with Git, the longer that things sit on branches, the more likely you are to have a conflict pushing up to it. And the more engineers you have committing to the code, the more you're tying up the the server and get to be able to handle the the accept of your push. So I think like, There's definitely a lot of tooling that can come from other companies that might help drive a solution to a monorepo, but I think that amount of work is probably just as much, if not more, than just trying to build solutions that help manage smaller repos better, right? Because in the end, you end up with that problem of, cool, we have a monorepo. Now we have to deal with all these other challenges anyway.
0: Maya, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. And thank you for trying out find collabs i have really gotten a lot out of your feedback and i hope people continue to collaborate with you on the project well yeah, thank you and real quick do you see DepsCloud cloud becoming a business
1: i hope so i keep going back and forth on what kind of value that we can add but the the big kind of thing that i keep coming back to is trying to solve that intersection of, like, how do we best advise not just companies, but even, like, open source foundations on which projects need funding based on, you know, some metrics within their repo, whether it be number of contributions, number of direct dependencies, transitive dependencies, like, DepthCloud kind of sits in this interesting position where it could be a little bit of an analytics platform, but it gets to be really interesting when you start looking at it from the perspective of not only identifying it from... Which dependency does your single company depend on? But rather, what dependency in open source does everybody depend on, e.g., Leftpad?
0: <laughs> All right, Maya. Well, thanks for coming on. Great talking to you. Yeah, thank you.